Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid. I have Brother Christopher assisting me today. We are the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson is Between Two Trees. Between Two Trees from Death to Life, brothers and sisters. Between Two Trees. Brothers and sisters, we will utilize the Bible. Um, to closely examine the, the tale of two trees. Today's lesson will teach us something profound about the human condition and the choices we all face. Brothers and sisters, the mystery of two trees is found hidden in the scriptures, brothers and sisters. Let's do that today, because why? We all know about the tree of good and evil. What about the other tree, the tree of life? You rarely hear people talk about the tree of life. We all know about the tree of knowledge. Take a follow. Take take a listen, brothers and sisters. We're at Genesis, the second chapter, the ninth verse. We're going to have Brother Christopher read the ninth verse just for context, and then we'll jump to 15 through 17. So we're going from 9 to 15, brothers and sisters. Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Look at this, brothers and sisters. The knowledge of the two trees was the very first teaching God taught Adam. Okay, that okay, brothers and sisters. Read verse 8, actually, brother. Genesis 2 and 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So man has just been has just been formed and Verse 9, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Among all the trees in the Garden of Eden, God identified two special trees. Two trees stood in the midst of the garden. One tree yielded life and the other death, brothers and sisters. Let's jump to verse 15. Genesis 2 and 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Of every what, brother? Every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. See, so this was the most important piece of information Adam could know immediately after being created. This is the first thing God taught him after being created. Think about that, brothers and sisters. The very first thing he taught Adam was about these trees. Okay? This should stun our minds and help us begin to see how important this subject is to God. This is the first information that Adam learned brothers and sisters let's go to Genesis 3 there's two trees Adam one yields death one yields life let's go to Genesis 3 and 23 we'll read 23 and 24 brothers and sisters Genesis 3 and 23 now this is subsequent this is after sin now brothers and sisters okay Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to the ground from whence he was taken. 
So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. When Adam and Eve violated God's holiness, they were driven out of Eden. Read 23 one more time, brother, please, because the text teaches that the Most High stationed cherubs with a flaming sword in front of the tree of life to guard it. Let's take a look. 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden <clears throat> to the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way. And a what, brother? A flaming sword which turned every way. So in front of the tree of life, God placed a flaming sword. Brothers and sisters, so the cherubs with their flame and sword were to prevent sinners from partaking the tree of life. See this? A lot of people don't even know this, brothers and sisters. The tree of, excuse me, the tree of life is being protected. It's being guarded. So this teaches us that in order to partake of the tree of life, we would need to get through what? Fire and a sword. See that? So he's telling you, in order to get to this tree, you must go through the fire and and the sword. Let's read those two scriptures again, brother, please. Genesis 3 and 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword was turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. It says a, a, a flaming sword which turned every way. That means it rotated, brothers and sisters. It was a rotating sword to prohibit that prohibited uh, sinners from partaking. So we're going to deal with that today. We're going to deal with that fire. We're going to deal with that sword because why? The Bible says you need to get through this fire and sword in order to partake. So let's deal with that. We know about the knowledge of good and evil. We understand that. But how do we get to this tree of life when it's being protected? Let's go to Exodus 3. We're going from Genesis 3 to Exodus 3. We're going to have Brother Christopher read 1 through 6. Exodus 3 and 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, mm -hmm. the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert. And came to the mountain of God. Now, brothers and sisters, here we read of the breaking process of Moses. The Bible tells you there's a breaking process. Before you can ride a horse, the horse has to be broken in. This was Moses, a man who fleed from Egypt to be second, second in command to go do what? To live in his father-in-law's house for 40, for 40 years, brothers and sisters. Okay, imagine living with your father-in-law. <laughs> For 40 years. See, he was being broken down because here he went from the palace to what? To being a shepherd, brothers and sisters. So during this time, God was humbling Moses, breaking him down. Can you read that one more time, brother? Exodus 3 and 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So look at that. He's tending to the sheep of his father-in-law in a land of what is now today Saudi Arabia, brothers and sisters. Okay. So here Moses was being stripped of his wealth, of his luxury. He was being stripped in order to be used, brothers and sisters. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God. 
even to Hareth. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. There's that flame again, brothers and sisters. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why thy bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, And said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Listen to this scripture, brothers and sisters. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Tell them what scripture you're at, brother. Exodus 3 and 5. And he said, What did he say? Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. What did he tell Moses? Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. Why? For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. This passage makes note of God's holiness. Brothers and sisters, it's the first time we see this. This is the first time in the Bible the word holy is used in relation to the Most High God. Okay, brothers and sisters. So here it is. The Most High gives Moses two commandments. Number one, to keep his distance. Number two, to remove his sandals. Let's take a look at four again. Exodus 3 and 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. Why? For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. See? So here the Most High reveals his holiness in a way in which it had never been conveyed before this is mount horde brothers and sisters okay so we're dealing with that fire now because why we need to break down the fire and the sword so the first thing we see is the most high was identified his presence was identified with what brothers and sisters fire we're going to find out what that represents let's go to genesis brothers and sisters genesis the fourth chapter the first through the fifth verse. Genesis 4 and 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Hold on. What did that say, brother? Verse 2? Verse 2. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So look at this. Abel was what? A shepherd. Okay? Cain was what? A husbandman. So when you read this story, brothers and sisters, this was done to keep them separate. See? One was in the field, <laughs> and the other was not. So this was strategic, okay? That one was made a shepherd, and the other was a husbandman. This was strategic brothers and sisters okay let's read two one more time genesis 4 and 2 and she bare again <clears throat> excuse me and she again bare his brother abel and abel was a keeper of sheep but cain was a tiller of the ground and in process of time it came to pass that cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the lord and abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. 
but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Now, let's stop right there, brothers and sisters. We need to carefully examine the Bible. Don't rush and skim through the Bible, okay? Brothers and sisters, it's irresponsible, and you'll miss a lot of what's there, okay? So don't carelessly just skim through the Bible. What we're seeing is, brothers and sisters, the differences in the details of the two offerings provide some clues on why the Most High was angry with Cain. A lot of, I remember even saying it, uh, Christians taught us it was because, you know, there was no blood. You know, there was no blood, so Abel brought blood and, um, you know, Cain brought fruit. But that's not it, brothers and sisters. That that could be part of it, but there's something greater that's there. Let's read three one more time, brother. Genesis 4 and 3. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Cain brought what? Brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. He brought the fruit of the ground, right? Verse 4. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. What did he do, brother? He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Now, let's just stop right there, brothers and sisters, because according to the text, Cain erred by not presenting his first fruits. And God did not do what? Regard his offering. You see that? Why is it talking about firstlings of the flock for Abel? You see? So Abel brought his first fruits. But Cain brought his leftovers, brothers and sisters. See, so this is where the sin came in, okay? This is where the sin came in. Let's read it one more time, verse 4. Genesis 4 and 4. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now, let's just listen to this, brothers and sisters. Listen to this. He had respect unto what? Abel and then his offering. Verse 5. Verse 5. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Read that again, brother. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Look at the structure of that text, brothers and sisters. But unto Cain and then his offering. Not that not his offering first. It was he had a problem with Cain and therefore had a problem with his offering. Why? <laughs> Why? Because, brothers and sisters, we're prohibited from offering leftovers to the Most High God. Okay? Abel brought his first fruits. Cain brought his leftovers. That's prohibited, brothers and sisters. First fruit offerings acknowledge God as the source of the harvest. So the question is, how did Cain know that God accepted Abel's sacrifice? Because first we see here, brothers and sisters, what transpires? Cain brings leftovers. Why Abel, his younger brother, does what? Brings the firstlings of his flock. So he bought the best. Okay. Now let's go to Jasher, brothers and sisters. The first thing we needed to show you is that the the sin started before the murder. Okay. It had to do with your willingness to sacrifice to God. Are you a minimalist? Or maximalist, brothers and sisters. Are you a? Uh, will you give max effort, or will you give minimum effort just to get by? Cain was what? He was a minimalist, brothers and sisters. And we're going to prove that. The question is, how did Cain know that the Most High accepted his brother's offering? Okay, because it said he had he he. He disregarded Cain and his sacrifice. So the question is, how did Cain know that his sacrifice was rejected? 
Let's go to the book of Jasher, brothers and sisters, okay? Let's go to the book of Jasher. Now, brothers and sisters, guess what? Jasher is written of in the Bible, okay? So I, I want to first put that out there. There's scriptures that tell you to, to, to study Jasher. So when you go to 2 Samuel 1 and 18, it tells you about the book of Jasher. Okay, brothers and sisters, that's actually in the Bible. So we only go to books that the Bible referred you to. Matter of fact, let's go there, brother. Let's go there. Let's go there, brothers and sisters, so you know that we're not taking you into, you know, taking you into something here. Follow us to Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. What's that say? Second Samuel 1, verse 18. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Teach the children of Judah what? Teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. The use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. What book is it written in? The book of Jasher. What book was that, brother? The book of Jasher. So the Bible refers you to the book of Jasher, okay? We don't just go into other books. We go where the Bible refers us to. And it's clear by this text here that... You know, Samuel and all the other brethren at this time, Jasher was part of the literature that they read. Okay? So it's referring you to say, listen, there's certain things written in the book of Jasher. Brothers and sisters, Jasher is a more detailed Genesis. Okay? It's written of in the Bible numerous times. So now, now that we've now that we've validated or authenticated Jasher, the book of Jasher, let's go to Jasher now. Let's go to Jasher, brothers and sisters. Because the question was, how did Cain know that the Most High accepted his brother's sacrifice? We're at Jasher, the first chapter, the 14th through the 16th verse. How did he know? How did he know? Jasher 1 and 14. And the boys grew up and their father gave them a possession in the land. And Cain was a tiller of the ground. And Abel, a keeper of sheep. So look at this. Cain was a husbandman. Abel was a shepherd in order to keep them separate. 15. And it was at the expiration of a few years that they brought an approximating offering to the Lord. And Cain brought from the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock from the fat thereof. Just in case you thought we were just, you know. Just bloviating, unless you thought that maybe we just made that up. Even in Jasher, it's confirming you that it's confirming that the 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 problem was one brought a offering, the other one bought the first fruits. Okay, so that's the key right there. God wants your first fruits. The Bible pushes that you know idea all throughout the manuscript. Okay, first fruits. He gets his off top. Not whatever's left over. Well, yeah, after I do everything I want to do, then, you know, whatever I got left over, two, three dollars, you know, throw that in the plate. No, it doesn't work that way, brother or sister. See, that's what Cain did. See, that's what Cain did. Read 15 one more time, please, brother. Joshua 1 and 15. And it was at the expiration of a few years that they brought an approximating offering to the Lord. And Cain brought from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock from the fat thereof. And God turned and inclined to Abel and his offering. And a fire came down from the Lord from heaven and consumed it. What came down, brother? 
a fire came down from the Lord from heaven and consumed it. Now look at this. Cain, this is how Cain knew that his brother's offering was accepted. Because fire came down to consume it. Let's see what 16 says. Verse 16. And unto Cain and his offering the Lord did not turn. And he did not incline to it. For he had brought from the inferior fruit of the ground before the Lord. He brought from what, brother? Brought from the inferior fruit of the ground before the Lord. He brought what he didn't want. See? And Cain was jealous against his brother Abel on account of this. Read that again, brother, please. Cain was jealous against his brother Abel on account of this. And he sought a pretext to slay him. You see that? Scripture says that Cain resented Abel. Because of his own deeds were evil. He chose to bring from the inferior fruit. <laughs> okay. Cain. Excuse me. Abel right off the back. Said I'm giving God my best. Cain over time just you know. I uh, don't really want that. I ate half of that last you know last week. Maybe you know that right there. I don't really want that. That's how he operated. Brothers and sisters. According to the text. It wasn't the most high's arbitrary pre uh, preference for Abel over Cain. That's not what it was. It's one presented first fruits, the other did not. So Cain procrastinates bringing his offering in the course of time. How do we know? Let's read this again. Let's read this again. Let's read verse let's read verse 15. Joshua 1 and 15. And it was at the expiration of a few years that they brought an approximating offering to the Lord. And Cain brought from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock from the fat thereof. And God turned and inclined to Abel and his offering. And a fire came down from the Lord from heaven and consumed it. Fire came down represents his presence, right, brothers and sisters? 16. And unto Cain and his offering, the Lord did not turn, and he did not incline to it. For he had brought from the inferior fruit of the ground before the Lord. And Cain was jealous against his brother Abel on account of this. See that, brothers and sisters? See, this is where the jealousy came from. And guess what? It's the same today. That people will be jealous or envious over you while they choose to do the wrong thing. Right? So when they feel that maybe... You're cleaner, you're purer than them. They try to corrupt you. I tell sisters this all the time. A sister that's, you know, young and, you know, still pure, you know, haven't been, you know, haven't been deceived by the world. You have other women who are impure. They would look to do what? They would look to stain the garments of this young, pure girl. Okay. They'll make fun of this young, pure girl. Why? It's because they lost their innocence. Sisters know exactly what we're talking what we're talking about right now, okay? There's a certain level of jealousy. Guess what? There's a certain level of envy that comes with us being Israelites. Why? <laughs> because God chose us, okay? While you've, they've decided to do something else, there's an envy or a jealousy, and this is why they're looking to kill you. This is why the same spirit of Cain, right? Because God had accepted us. This is the same spirit, brothers and sisters. He became jealous over his brother on the account of what? <laughs> the decline of God's acceptance. 
See, so we wanted to put that out there, brothers and sisters. We went here to show what? What does the fire represent? Because remember, there's a flaming sword before the tree of life. We have to identify that fire and what it represents. We have to identify that sword and what it represents in order to understand what I must endure to receive that tree of life. Let's go to Exodus, brother. Let's go to Exodus, the 19th chapter, the 17th and the 18th verse. Exodus 19 and 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was also, <clears throat> excuse me, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Why, brother? Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Now look at that. Examine the power and presence in the flame. Read that one more time, brother, please. Exodus 19 and 18. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. See that? Our God did what? Our God came to earth and it was like the earth was being consumed by the holiness of God. His presence. See, his presence alone brings fire. <laughs> you see that, brothers and sisters? It brings fire. So now, now you understand. Go back to Genesis 3 now. Let's go back there because now we've identified the fire. Let's go back to Genesis 3. Um, let's see. Let's go to Genesis 3 and let's go to verse 6. Excuse me. Uh, not 6, verse 24. 23 and 24 because we're dealing with the fire now. Genesis 3 and 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. A flaming sword. So now we're, we're starting to identify this. He's saying in order for you to get to the tree of life, you're going to have to come into my presence. <laughs> okay. The tree of life is in my presence. You see that, brothers and sisters? So we're going to identify the meanings of fire and the sword, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Job 19 and 29. Let's go here. Follow us, please, brothers and sisters. Job, the 19th chapter, the 29th verse. Last verse in this chapter. Job. 19 and 29. Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. Examine the, the hermeneutical vernacular utilized in this passage. Can you read that one more time, brother? 29. Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword. So, brothers and sisters, the first thing we must do is contextualize the text. After we contextualize it, we can conceptualize it, brothers and sisters. Take a look at it slowly here. Verse 29. Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword. Mm, brothers and sisters, according to the author, the sword is associated with divine judgment. You see that, brothers and sisters? Swords 
are primarily a symbol of warfare and therefore should invoke fear. Let's read that one more time, brother. Job 19 and 29. Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. See that judgment, sword, judgment. That's what it represents. So now we see, okay, we've identified the fire. We have now identified the sword. <laughs> okay, so there's a judgment that you must go through <laughs> before you can partake. See? Now, brothers and sisters, the other tree, it doesn't have a flaming sword in front of it. <laughs> see, and that's why many people go that route. Many people go that route. Of, I just want to get intellectual knowledge. I just want head knowledge. Guess what? You don't need head knowledge. You need heart knowledge. Because the, the smartest people during Christ's day did not get in. But they had all the intellectual knowledge. They had all the doctrinal knowledge. So there's something greater. Brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, fire represents the presence of God. A sword represents the judgment of God. And you must go through both. You must go through both in order to obtain or procure or secure the tree of life. Let's go to Psalms, brothers and sisters. Psalms, we're going to have Brother Christopher read verse 11 and 12. The title of today's lesson, In Between Two Trees. Yeah, Psalms 7 and 11. Psalms 7 and 11. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Brothers and sisters, the writer points out that if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. Why did we go here? Because we're trying to identify what is a sword. What's the symbolic understanding of a sword in the Bible? Let's read it one more time, brother. Psalm 7 and 11. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. How long? Every day. See that? According to the text, wickedness will not go unnoticed by God. He's angry with the wicked every day. Okay? Verse 12. If he turn not... He will wet his sword. If he turn not, to turn is to repent. Okay, brothers and sisters. Wet his sword means he will sharp he will sharpen his sword in preparation to inflicting punishment, brothers and sisters. Okay. Verse 12. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Here we read the consequences to the wicked if they persevere in the course of which they are pursuing. See that? He's saying, if he turn not, I'm going to have to sharpen my sword. See? So sword is judgment in the Bible, brothers and sisters. It represents God's judgment. See? Further proof. Let's go to Joshua 5, brothers and sisters. Joshua, the fifth chapter. We're going to have Brother Christopher read the 13th verse through the 15th verse. These are the last three scriptures in this chapter. Joshua 5 and 13. Now brothers and sisters. Here Joshua is about to lead our people. Into the first major battle. Inside of what? The promised land. Jericho. This was the first battle. 
brothers and sisters. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. With what? With his sword drawn in his hand. As Joshua looks up, he's surprised to see someone who appears to be ready to go to battle, brothers and sisters. Not only is this individual in possession of a sword, but he has the sword drawn from the sheath. Look at that one more time. Joshua 5 and 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. With what, brother? His sword drawn in his hand. You see that, brothers and sisters? And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? In the scriptures, brothers and sisters, the drawn sword is a instrument of impending judgment. See, so we're showing you what the sword means, especially a sword out of its sheath. Impending judgment. Let's look at the next scripture. Verse 14. And he said, Nay. But as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. He did what? Fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And did what? And did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot. Brothers and sisters, in the 14th verse, Joshua worships this fellow without being rebuked, which you're not allowed to do to an angel. What we've discovered is that this is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah. Because you can find many times, especially in Revelations, where people have tried to worship angels and the angels prohibited this. This angel did not prohibit. You see this? This angel allowed this. In fact, what did he say? Verse 15. Verse 15. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto the Joshua, The captain, right? Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is of the holy. And Joshua did so. See? So this was actually Christ here. Christ was here from the beginning, brothers. This is even before he came through Mary's, you know, womb. Okay? He had a function well before then. In the beginning, he was he created everything. Brothers and sisters. So the first thing we see in these particular texts is Christ and his function before birth, brothers and sisters. But there's something key. There's something key. I need you to jump back to, to verse 13 because the most important question is what? Let's take a look at it. Joshua 5 and 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And, behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? He said, Are you for us or our adversaries, brothers and sisters? <laughs> what did he say, brother? Verse 14. 14. And he said, Nay. What did he say? Nay. Look at that. He said, Neither. <laughs> the most important question is whose side are you on? See that? Because he's saying, I'm on the side of right. If you're on the side of right, then I'm on your side. But if you're on the side of wrong, I'm on the Lord's side. So the most important question is, whose side are you on? 
as Joshua began to ask, are you here for us or for our adversaries? He's like, I'm on God's side, young man. I'm on God's side. Uh, read verse 15, brother, please. Joshua 5 and 15. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. Look at this, brothers and sisters. He instructs Joshua to give the same honor that Moses gave the burning bush. Loose thy shoe off thy foot. <laughs> See? Now, we know the Most High didn't. The Most High never leaves the throne. So who was that representing uh, the Most High? <laughs> See? Christ. This is Christ, brothers and sisters. Without any shadow of a doubt. Without any shadow of a doubt. Because no other angel would have the unmitigated goal, okay, to say, loose, loose your sandals off. Brothers and sisters, in Hebrew culture, someone who could take your shoes off was authority over you, okay? Remember, John the Baptist said, you know, there comes a man whose shoes or sandals I'm not worthy to unlash. If somebody makes you take your shoes off, they're the authority. It's just like when, you know, when uh, you, you go into your house, you know, your mom's house, and she's like, uh-uh, take your shoes off. Why? Because she's the authority of that house. See? So that's, it's different from how we think it to be. We think if somebody take your shoes off, you know, that they're a servant. Brothers and sisters, you have to really read the Bible her hermeneutically, okay? If somebody can make you take your shoe off your foot, they are the authority over you in said circumstance or environment, okay? Brothers and sisters, so don't allow these, what we would consider sometimes small details to escape you, brothers and sisters. Okay, this is extremely significant that this particular angel, captain of the Lord's host, okay, allowed him to worship without prohibition, without rebuke. See that, brothers and sisters? We're dealing with what? We're dealing with the sword here. Okay, the sword represents judgment. Let's go to Romans 13, brother. Let's go to the New Testament here. Romans, the 13th chapter, we're going to have Brother Christopher read verse 4. Romans 13 and 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil. But what? But if thou do that which is evil. Who is this speaking of, brothers and sisters? These are the workers of the Most High. Okay, the people whom the Most High God used to deliver his word. Okay. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Because what? He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. In this text, the sword is an instrument by which punishment is executed. You see that? Now, Christians made us believe this was about the government. This is not about the government. This was the church government. So there was a government within the church, brothers and sisters. Okay? <laughs> so the most powerful man among the people was the high priest, Moses. <laughs> okay? So it was actually the church that made the decisions about yea or nay, who to kill, who to let live. It was the church. So we're showing you the church has always been the authority. Christians will make it seem as if this is the government here. 
<laughs> you know, the Roman government. I need you to read that one more time, brother, because this is referencing the, the leadership structure within a, within a church. Romans 13 and 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. See, so according to the text, the purpose of leadership is twofold, brothers and sisters. Number one, can you read verse four? Verse four. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. First is to preserve the good, brothers and sisters. That's your first purpose, to preserve the good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Number two is the reprimand lawbreakers. So the people in whom the Most High are going to use are going to be people who will tell you that you're wrong <laughs> if you go against God. Okay, brothers and sisters? He's not going to use a person that's too cowardly to, to have to, you know, to be able to call out evil, brothers and sisters. So we're showing you something here. The sword represented what? <laughs> represented ju uh, judgment. But if thou, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Why? Because he beareth not the sword in vain. He don't have that sword in vain. See? You see that, brothers and sisters? Why? Because right now we need to identify how to get to this tree. Okay? We know about the tree of knowledge and good of evil. Now you're understanding why most people take the other tree. <laughs> because listen, I don't need to go through fire and a sword to get to the other tree. <laughs> see? And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took the knowledge. They just wanted to be deep. They didn't want to learn the Bible to actually change. They wanted to learn the Bible to teach somebody else. Mistake. That's a mistake. You don't learn only what you can teach, brothers and sisters. The application, number one, first of all, is for me, for you, for us. Okay, before you go to take it to somewhere else, brothers and sisters, the application should go to you first. Many of us, we're not doing that. We, we're... You know, we have itching ears where we're trying to hear anything that's deep so we can make people think we're deep. And that that's just not the purpose, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Isaiah 65. Because as we see in this particular text, the word, the sword is what? A picture of retributive justice. See? Judgment. Justice. That's what it represents. Take a look at Isaiah 65, brothers and sisters. Isaiah, the 65th chapter, in the 12th verse. We'll have Brother Christopher read that. Isaiah 65 and 12. Therefore will I number you to the sword. Read that again, brother. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Examine this. A warning against disobedience, brothers and sisters. These are somber words from a God to his people who turned away from him. Verse 12. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Mm. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. 
We're reading the consequences of felonious conduct, brothers and sisters. Refusal to capitulate has consequences, and we're reading them. Let's read that one more time, brother. Isaiah 65 and 12. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes. But did what? Did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. The rebellious afflict themselves. They procure their own ruin, according to Isaiah. Brothers and sisters, the non-compliant by a course of transgression afflict themselves. He said, when I called, you ignored. <laughs> okay, when I spoke, you didn't listen. You asked for this. Okay, you did evil before my eyes. You didn't care what, what I as your God wanted. And because of that, swore time. See, swore down. You shall bow down to the slaughter. On your knees. See that, brothers and sisters? The sword represents justice. See? It represents judgment. We know what the Bible is the sword, right? <laughs> See? So he's telling you, listen, you're going to be judged. <laughs> okay? My presence is in my book. <laughs> I gave you my word. Inside of those words are rules and regulations. That you must follow as a token or a sign of love. I will number you to the sword for the slaughter. Take a look at this. Let's go to Hebrews 12 and 29 because let's let's deal with the fire now. Let's deal with the fire. Let's still deal with that fire. We're gonna break it all the way down today, most high willing, brothers and sisters. Hebrews, the, tw the 12th chapter, the 9th verse. Excuse me, the 29th verse. Hebrews 12 and 29. For our God is a consuming fire. And what is he, brother? Our God is a consuming fire. Biblically speaking, brothers and sisters, there are two purposes for fire. The first is to purify and the second is to destroy. You see that this is a further reason why we should serve God with profound reverence and unwavering fidelity. Our God is a consuming fire. Read that one more time, please, brother. Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. So it's not just the presence of God that is associated with fire, but his wrath against sin. <laughs> you see that, brothers and sisters? His, his presence was marked by fire. Okay? Remember, fire came from heaven with Elijah. Remember that, brothers and sisters? See? He said, I'm a consuming fire. What does a fire do? A fire does two things, brothers and sisters. It cleanses and it also destroys. See? So you have to go through that, brothers and sisters. There's a cleansing. To be in his presence, you must be cleansed. Okay? Or, if you don't want to be cleansed, you must be destroyed. See this? Our God is a consuming fire. So if you have impurities and you come to his presence, he's going to burn those impurities out. He's going to start showing you things. See, the first thing God does, the Holy Spirit does, once you come into the truth, 
is he starts to point out, the Most High starts to point out certain things in you. That he's saying, all right, son, you know, that was good for then. But right now, we have to brush that off, okay? We need to peel that off. Then we'll put, peel this back. Same thing with our sisters. It's impossible to be in the presence of God and God not to be telling you about yourself. Because see, usually what typically happens is we get this truth and then we look to judge other people. We look to tell everyone else what they should do and what they should eat and what they should celebrate. And God is saying, well, hold on, son. Hold on, daughter. Turn that inwardly. Because I'm pointing out things in you that need to be burned away. So we're showing you something. That fire not only represents God's presence, but it represents his judgment also. His wrath, brothers and sisters. Take a look. Let's go to Nahum, brothers and sisters. Old Testament. Let's go to Nahum. We're going to chapter 1, verse 6. Nahum 1 and 6. What's that saying, brother? Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. What is his fury doing? His fury is poured out like fire. And the rocks are thrown down by him. What's the first part say, brother? Who can stand before his indignation? The word rendered indignation is reserved almost exclusively to denote the wrath of God, brothers and sisters. You see that? Continue, brother. And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. God is a consuming fire who is determined to consume every bit of iniquity from every corner of our hearts. You see this, brothers and sisters? This is what Moses was seeing. Moses was seeing a bush that was on fire, but it, 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 was, it wasn't burning, brothers and sisters. This is how our God is, brothers and sisters. <laughs> it's like the blue flame, brothers and sisters. If you have impurity, you will, it will be known. Because why? God is going to have to judge you. So what we're going to do is, you know, he loves us so much that he would point out while we're still on earth, the things that need to be corrected. Because guess what? When you stand before the judge, when you're there for your final examination, there's no more time to change. Okay? So you would prefer to actually know right now for the most high to show you certain things, to uncover certain parts of you that haven't changed. Because it's one thing to follow the law, brothers and sisters. But you cannot legislate morality. Okay, brothers and sisters? So just because you don't eat pork <laughs> doesn't make you a good person. See? So let's deal with this thing today. Let's deal with this thing. We're showing you that what? Fire also represents his indignation. His fury is poured out like a fire. See, God is a consuming fire. It consumes all that is impure in us. You see that, brothers and sisters? The, the idea behind the consuming fire is that it's the fire of God's judgment. Fire came from heaven to, to do what? To, to, to accept Cain's offering. Remember that, brothers and sisters? So it's a lot we learn about that fire. And in order to make it to that tree, you're going to have to go through a flaming sword. And if you're unwilling to go 
through that flaming sword, you will not get in. It's not going to happen, brothers and sisters. See, and now we understand why many people went to the other tree and still to that. It's all about just being deep. It's all about intellectual knowledge. It's not about changing at all. Let's go to 1 Peter, brothers and sisters. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, the 17th verse. 1 Peter 4 and 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Read that again, brother, please. Verse 17. For the time has come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. The what? Judgment must begin at the house of God. Where is the house of God? The children of Israel. You see that? So although this is a privileged position, it's also a vulnerable position. Yes, we are God's people. <laughs> that means we are judged much more harshly. Let's read that again, brother. First Peter 4 and 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? See, so here we see that the disciplinary judgment begins from God's own house. See, so it begins with us, brothers and sisters. God begins his governmental administration by his disciplinary judgment over his own. See, so before he goes out to Gentiles, he's coming here with us. <laughs> See, judgment. God is a God of justice and judgment. And that's going to begin at the house of God. See, that's going to begin with Israelites. See, and this is the point of being an Israelite. We don't bring forth that we're Israelites to say we're better than other people. <laughs> okay, that's not why we brought it forth. We brought it forth because we're held to a higher standard than other people. You see that? If you're trying to emulate other nations of people and wondering why <laughs> your judgment is much more severe, we're reading it here, brothers and sisters. See? Judgment begins at the house of God. Let's go to Hebrews 4 now. Follow us to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, brothers and sisters. Hebrews. 4 and 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than what, brother? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Did you see that, brothers and sisters? It's only in the mirror of scripture that we can see ourselves as we really are. Do you see? You see them, brothers and sisters, the author speaks to the perspective we should adopt as we open up God's word. Can you read that again? Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the and, heart. And is a what, brother? discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The author teaches us that the Bible is a spiritual mirror that shows our inward nature. See? A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's motive. See? So according to the text, only the Bible 
can delineate between the three separate components of man. Let's read that one more time because there's three separate components according to the text. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The dividing of the soul and spirit. Those are two. And of the joints and marrow. And the what? Joints and marrow. That's the body. So you have the body, you have the soul, you have the spirit. So from the inside, the innermost part of man is his spirit. What houses his spirit? His soul. What houses both? His body. So according to the Bible, man is a Trinitarian formula, just like how God is. Okay. <laughs> okay. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All three separate, but they function together as one. <laughs> so man is made of three components. Spirit, soul, flesh, or body, brothers and sisters. So we wanted to show you that what? This sword, the Bible brothers and sisters, is a mirror. So he will use this Bible to show you where you must change in order to get to this tree. Let's go to Isaiah 6 and 5, brothers and sisters. Let's go there. Because we're showing you how, we're showing you the path. We're utilizing the Bible to show you the path to that tree. We're learning it here today. Isaiah 6 and 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now this is Isaiah, okay, this is Isaiah getting his marching orders, and guess what I discovered, all too often we tend to use God's word as a magnifying glass through which we judge everyone else. What was the first thing that Isaiah did? Read that one more time, brother, please. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Closely examine the prophet's first recognition. What was that? Because I am a man of unclean lips. The first thing he recognizes, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. <laughs> Before the Most High points out what's wrong with others, he points out what's wrong, what's wrong with you. You see that, brothers and sisters? The very first thing was what? Let's read it one more time. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am undone, not someone else. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean lips. See? You see that? The first thing he recognized was his deficiency. And then subsequent to that, now, <laughs> now I can see outside. So until you recognize your own deficiency, you're unfit for service. And this is what he was showing. Let's read it one more time. Isaiah 6 and 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the that, Lord of hosts. See that, brothers and sisters? Your lack of self-awareness will be an impediment to your service. The first thing that Isaiah recognized was his fault. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then after that, he said, and I dwell amongst people with unclean lips. In that order. In that order, brothers and sisters. First, the sword has to turn on you. 
I tell brothers this and sisters, sometimes as you're listening to the broadcast, there's certain scriptures or things that we may say that may hurt brothers and sisters. But you have to let the sword fall on you. You have to let the sword fall on you. That's why it's called a sword. That's why it hurts. That's why it offends you because it's a sword. And if something that we say or read in the scripture, it touches you in a certain area, that's God talking to you. Because now I have to find out why I feel this way about this particular topic. See, and that's how it works. See, when you're going through the word or you're listening to the word and something is read out of scripture that makes you feel some, t some type of way, now I have to go identify why that is. Why am I angry when that comes up? See, this is how it works, brothers and sisters. This is how it works. The first thing that he recognized was his own unclean lips. Subsequent to that, now I can say, you know, I'm amongst the people with those same unclean lips. So the first thing we had to notice, brothers and sisters, is that when, when you're going through the fire, when you're in the presence of God, the first thing he does is give you self-awareness. That's the very first thing he does. So anytime a person has a lot to say about everything that's right and wrong with somebody else, but never brings forth anything that God is telling them about themselves, I know that's not God they're talking to. That's a serpent. Because the serpent talked to you about other people. God talked to you about you. Let's prove that. Let's prove that that's a that level of self-awareness is required in order to do this work. Let's go to Romans 7 and 18. Romans 7 and 18. This is Paul. You know, the one that you all Christians love so much. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Dwelleth what? Dwelleth no good thing. Paul noticed that nothing good dwells in our flesh. Brothers and sisters. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Mm, for to will is what, brother? For to will is present in me. I have the will to want to do right. But how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul was growing in an increasingly, you know, increasing his awareness of his sin. You see this? See, when you spend time with God, he begins to increase your self-awareness. So here was Paul, the author of the Bible, who wrote majority of the Bible, said what in verse 18? Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Brothers and sisters, Paul says the powerful influence of sin is terribly difficult to overcome. We're going to break that down. We're going to have Brother Christopher read that and take his time and we'll break that down. What does verse 20 say, brother? Romans 7 and 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. If I do things I don't want to. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's saying, I know what's right and what's wrong. However, I continue to do what's wrong. He's saying, there's something else in me. That's sin that dwelleth in me, brothers and sisters. Okay? Read verse 19, brother. Romans 7 and 19. 
for the good that I would, I do not. The good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil which I would not. The evil I know that is wrong. That I do. See? Now, if I do that, I would not. If I do what I don't want to. It is no more I that do it. It's not me. But sin that dwelleth in me. There's something in me. See? What's 21 say, brother? Verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Even when doing good, evil is present. You see that, brothers and sisters? How do we know? He's saying, even when I do the right thing, I know evil's there because I actually, I had to make a decision to do the right thing. It was actually a decision. <laughs> see? What did that say again, brother? Verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Continue. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. But what? But I see another law warring, <clears throat> excuse me, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see that Paul is conscious of a war going on within himself. You see that brothers and sisters, you see how self-aware he is, his mind, which served God wars against his flesh which served sin. Let us take a look at that one more time. Can you read 22 and 23, brother? Romans 7 and 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. See, the inward man loves the law of God. You know what's right. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. See, so he highlights that our carnal body wars against the indwelling spirit, brothers and sisters. The evil propensity of our nature, the apostle calls what? A law, a principle. Why? Because of its permanence. Read 23, brother, please. Verse 23. But I see another law in my members. See, there's a law. Why is he calling it a law? <laughs> You see that? A law is permanent, right? What's the law, brother? Warring against the law of my mind. So, so there's a law in my members and a law in my mind. So it's showing you there's, there's more than one law. <laughs> okay, brothers and sisters. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. See that? We're in between two trees, brothers and sisters. Between two trees, we're showing you, listen, this is required to get to the tree of life. You have to let the sword fall on you. You're going to have to be cut back. That's what circumcision was about, brothers and sisters, was to, yes, to cut back a piece that's natural, but not needed. So God is telling you, there's, there's certain things that are natural, but it's not right. It's not needed. Because naturally, brothers and sisters, <laughs> naturally, you, who taught you how to lie? <laughs> Did somebody teach you that? You see? So naturally, you know how to do wrong on your own without someone teaching it. Because the heart is wicked. It's deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah 17 says, brothers and sisters. See? You have to be taught to say thank you. <laughs> okay? See, you have to be taught the good things 
You learn to do evil all on your own. Nobody taught you to steal. Nobody said this is how you steal. This was something you learned all on your own, brothers and sisters. So we're showing you something here. In between two trees. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 3, brother. New Testament. 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, the 17th and the 18th verse. 2 Corinthians 3 and 17. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is a vital passage for understanding how the gospel transforms us. This passage describes an ongoing transformation that's taking place in our lives. Let's read those two scriptures again, brother. Verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Look at that. Look at that, brothers and sisters. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's freedom, right? The spirit of the Most High, right? Verse 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. So there's two things we're seeing. Where the spirit of the Lord is or the Holy Spirit, there's transformation, there's truth, there's freedom. Let's read 17 one more time. 2 Corinthians 3 and 17. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is. What's there? There is liberty. There's liberty. There's freedom. There's justice. See, wherever that is, <laughs> wherever the Holy Spirit is. See, look at verse 18. Verse 18. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. The what? The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. The effect of the spirit of God is to, to remove obscurity, uh, to allow us or enable us to see clearly. This is what the text is telling you. If you want the spirit of God to transform you, you must continue to look into the mirror. See, the Bible is a mirror, brothers and sisters. It's only while you're looking in the mirror of God's word that the spirit can transform us. You see, you have to stay in the word, brothers and sisters. Read those two scriptures one more time, brother, please. Second Corinthians 3 and 17. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Are changed into the same image from glory to glory. From glory to glory. So brothers and sisters, the power to remove that veil and open man's mind to God's glory comes through the Holy Spirit. You can know as many scriptures as you want. You can be able to recite the entire Bible from memory. If you do not have the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the Most High, you are going to hell. You are a slave. See? You cannot recognize yourself until you recognize the glory of God. And that's what it's telling us. Look at verse 18 one more time. Verse 18. But we all... With open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Now, first thing you have to do is recognize his glory. Then what? Are changed into the same image from glory to glory. From glory to glory. So first thing you must do is recognize God when you see him. <laughs> 
Okay. And until you recognize him, you cannot be transformed. This is how it works. Brothers and sisters, you cannot recognize yourself until you recognize the glory of God. Because once you recognize his glory, you see how far away you actually are. You see that? You see how unworthy we actually are. Until you recognize that, (laughs) okay? Until you recognize that, you are still a slave to sin. Because you don't recognize the greatness of God. And along with your, your... your inability to recognize his glory, you can't recognize yourself. Because why? We're made in God's image. <laughs> See? Let's go to Ecclesiasticus. Excuse me, Ecclesiastes. Uh, not Ecclesiasticus, but Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, the 18th verse. Remember, what did we just read? That we're changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of God, right? Now, let's look at verse 18 here. Ecclesiastes 1 and 18. For in much wisdom is much grief. What did that say? For in much wisdom is much grief. Here we read of the perceived benefit of willful ignorance. And what is it? And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. So because knowledge makes what? The application of that information compulsory, that's where the sorrow comes in. (laughs) See? For much wisdom, what, brother? For in much wisdom is much grief. There's grief in wisdom. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. See that? Why do we increase sorrow? Because knowledge that makes the application of the information compulsory. Information breeds a fight within the conscience, brothers and sisters. Now it's not ignorance. It's negligence. It's disobedience. It's one thing to not know. It's something else entirely to know and do it anyway. See? (laughs) That's why it says when you increase knowledge, you increase sorrow. Because God, as much as you're learning the Bible, he's showing you more and more of yourself. Of things that are unacceptable. So self-examination may be one of the hardest things that God asks us to do. But it's absolutely essential to our growth. Read that one more time, please, brother. Ecclesiastes 1 and 18. For in much wisdom is much grief. The more you learn, the more grief comes. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, so the more we know of ourselves, the less satisfied we shall be with ourselves. See? So he's telling you that he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why? <laughs> because now that you have the knowledge, the heart is condemning you. The conscious is working against you. The conscious can't work against you if it doesn't know. <laughs> and now you see why people would remain want to remain ignorant. They won't even a lot of Christians won't even let you go into the scriptures. <laughs> It's like they're fighting against the scriptures. So we wanted to show you, brothers and sisters, when you start to read the Bible and understand the Bible, you become less and less satisfied with yourself because God is pointing out all of your blemishes, all your imperfections and saying, son, your responsibility is once I show it to you to extinguish it, to exterminate it. Can't hold you accountable to exterminate something you can't see. 
See, so the first thing that has to happen is light. That fire must show you what needs to be cleansed. Okay, brothers and sisters, what needs to be exterminated? What needs to be destroyed within us? For in much wisdom is much grief. Any brother or sister that increase knowledge, increase sorrow. See that? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Let's go to James, brother. Let's go to James because let's talk about this mirror. The mirror of God's word here. Let's go to James, the first chapter, the 23rd through the 25th verse, brothers and sisters. James 1 and 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Oh, you see that, brothers and sisters? <laughs> According to the text, we must receive God's word as doers, not merely hearers. Okay? Verse 24. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. And straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Read, start at 23 again, brother. Because the power of his instruction is only found in its application. So it's saying it doesn't matter if you hear the word. <laughs> okay? Can you read that again? Verse 23. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He's like a man who looked at his face in the mirror. For he beholdeth himself. And goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He's saying you look in the mirror, and as soon as you walk away from it, you forgot. See, usually when you look in the mirror, you look in the mirror to do something. Let me make sure, you know, my hair is right, my mustache, I don't have no toothpaste on my lip. That's why healthy people look in the mirror for a reason, to do something, brothers and sisters. And what we're seeing here is the Messiah, the Messiah's brother, James, said the word of God is like a mirror. Just as a mirror reflects what we look like on the outside, God's word reflects what we are on the inside. Let's read those three scriptures again, brother. James 1 and 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. He shall be blessed in what? Shall be blessed in his deed. In his deed. So the fundamental purpose of God's word is to give us true self-knowledge. Brothers and sisters. So you run around telling, you know, black people, you need to you need to have knowledge of yourself. You don't have self-knowledge, brother. Unless you're dealing with the Bible, brother, you're lost. The mirror of the word not only examines us, but it reveals our sins. But what? It also helps us to cleanse. See that, brothers and sisters? <laughs> so the question is, have you ever seen yourself in the mirror of the Bible? And what did you do about what you saw? See, have you seen yourself? I understand it's, it, you know, it's a scary thing to hold that mirror up, brothers and sisters. It's a scary thing. I understand. I've, I've had to do it, brothers and sisters. But it must be done. Why do we, how do we know this? There's a flaming sword that prohibits or impedes your ability 
to get to the tree of life. And now you're understanding why most people don't want to do this. They don't want to deal with the judgment part. They don't want to deal with the part where God says, this is wrong about you, daughter. This is wrong about you, son. Eradicate this. Exterminate this. We would rather go the other way and just, you know, learn the Bible intellectually. Know who the author is and where it was written in the hermeneutical understanding. But not to, not for application. Not here to apply. Really just here to learn it. See? Let's take a look because the Bible is what? According to the Bible, the Bible is the mirror of God that shows you yourself. Until you can see yourself, your service is illegitimate. So you must first see what's going on with you. Because we're so wise with other people's problems, aren't we? Let's go to Psalms, brothers and sisters. The 19th chapter, the 12th and the 13th verses. Psalms 19 and 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Read 12 one more time, brother, please. Verse 12. Who can understand his errors? What did it say? Who can understand his errors? Rarely, very rarely will a person see their own hypocrisy reflected in the mirror. You see this, brothers and sisters? Who can understand his errors? Right? Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let what, brother? Let them not have dominion over me. If we allow our carnal natures to dominate us, we remain blind to many of our sins. You see this? Let's read that one more time. 13, brother. Psalms 19 and 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not have what? Let them not have dominion over me. Let's, let's key in on that word dominion. Brothers and sisters, sin often secures that kind of domineering mastery over the mind. See that? Have dominion over you. If somebody have dominion over you, you are a slave. You see that? You see that, brothers and sisters? Sin makes a slave out of anyone who yields to him. Keep thy servant back from presumptuous, willful sins. Let them not have dominion, showing you that sin has the power to dominate you, especially purpose, willful sin. You see that? So he understood. <laughs> There's many faults to go around. There's some errors I'm, I'm not aware of. Each year, the Most High shows me things that I could do better, okay? Or things I need to be more diligent on, okay? <laughs> and then you have certain sins where you know it's wrong. You know it. But like, like Romans 7 said, you choose not to do it. And though that type of sin, that type of purpose sin, will have dominion over you. You see that, brothers and sisters? It will have dominion over you. Let's go to Psalms 139. Let's go here. 
Psalms 139 and 23. We'll have Brother Christopher read 23 and 24. Psalms 139 and 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Look at this, brothers and sisters. You see this? So God points out the imperfections, the blemishes. Look at the courage here. Look at the courage of the psalmist. Read 23 one more time, brother. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Do what? Try me and know my thoughts. Look at that. He said, test me. <laughs> test me. See, if there's something there, I need you to show it to me. Because why, brothers and sisters? Sometimes there are things beneath the surface, surface that we can't see. So God will have the earth conspire against you to pull certain things out of you that are there. And once you see it, once you shed light on it, now, okay, now I can deal with this thing. I didn't know that was there. Read verse 24, brother, please. Psalms 139 and 24. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he knew. That what was most important was the inside. See, you could be following, you know, not eating pork and all this stuff and observing the Sabbath and all that and still go to hell, brothers and sisters, and still go to hell. Because where the wickedness is on the interior, brothers and sisters, the iniquity is where? On the interior, which is most important. See, the, the Pharisees just made it seem like they followed God and they were deep. But really inside, they were ravenous wolves. They dealt with all types of iniquity. Doctrine was right. <laughs> they had the right doctrine <laughs> for the most part. And still went to hell to show you that doctrine alone is not enough. Doesn't matter how good of the doctrine you have. If you haven't changed internal, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Proverbs 16. Let's go there. Proverbs, the 16th chapter, the second verse. Take a look. Proverbs 16 and 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Most people do not realize it, but their vision is cloudy, brothers and sisters. Okay, you have to know this. It's not what it looks like. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. They're clean where? Clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirit. So according to the author, we are all apt to be partial in judging ourselves. So when someone else does something, you threw the roof. When you do it in the same principle, you're a little bit more understanding. Now that's dangerous. It's dangerous that... All of man's ways are clean in his own eyes. Because why? A man doesn't make a decision without justifying it first. <laughs> See? Even when you do the wrong thing, you have a justification of why you did the wrong thing. See? So they're clean in his own eyes. Okay, well, you know what? If they're clean in my own eyes, I need a new set of eyes. <laughs> okay? I need a mirror. I need, you know, I need something else. And this I always remember, brothers and sisters. Is even though you think you know, it's a great chance you don't. It's a great chance you don't, brothers and sisters. Why? Can you read that again? 
Proverbs 16 and 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. The Lord weigh the spirits. So brothers and sisters, according to the text, men and women have a proclivity to justify themselves and see their own ways as pure. That's why the judgment has to come from somewhere else. That's just why he said, cleanse me from secret sins. Because why? In man's eyes, in my eyes, you can't see the weaknesses. You need the word of God to do so. Let's go to Isaiah, brothers and sisters. Isaiah, the 33rd chapter, the 14th verse. We'll have Brother Christopher read the 14th and the 15th verse. Isaiah 33 and 14. Listen to this closely. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Hold, hold on. Did y'all see that, brothers and sisters? Read that again. Verse 14, brother, please. Verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Brothers and sisters, here we read that there are both sinners and hypocrites in Zion. <laughs> See, these are people who know they're Israelites. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. The sinners in Zion. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Hypocrisy, right? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Look at that. Who amongst us can dwell with the devouring fire? The most high God is a consuming fire. The question is, who can live amongst this fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Continue. He that walketh righteously. Now, now examine it. Examine the first qualification in order to dwell with the consuming fire. It poses a question, who amongst us can dwell with a devouring fire? And then it gives you what? It gives you an answer. Isaiah 33 and 15. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. Now we'll deal with the first the first thing that has to happen in order to dwell with the consuming fire is to walk it, walketh righteously. See, so the first qualification is to walk righteously, right? And then if you notice the hypocrites in Zion tremble. Why? Because they're afraid of being exposed. You see this, brothers and sisters? Read 14 one more time, brother. Isaiah 33 and 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Fearfulness. You see that, brothers and sisters? Surprise the hypocrites. You see that? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who amongst us can live amongst the consuming fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? See that? <laughs> see, in order to in order to be into the presence of the most high. You have to go through the fire, brothers and sisters. You have to. That's mandated. Genesis told us that. See, it's much easier to go to that other tree because why? I don't need to go through fire. I don't need to go through a sword. 
I just need to, you know, come through knowledge and just learn deep knowledge. See? And even amongst Israelites, brothers and sisters, most Israelite churches are pharisaical. So they don't deal with the heart at all. Everything is just about the law that you can see, while the heart is cancerous, brothers and sisters. The iniquity is out of hand. So I know many Israelites that are bad people, even though they know they're Israelites, even though they don't eat pork, even though they, they don't celebrate Christmas, they're not good people. So we needed to put that out there. The number one, the number one qualification to dwell with the consuming fire is that you walk righteously. Now, brothers and sisters, the word walketh in the Bible, it does what? It implies progression. <laughs> See, it didn't say stand righteously. It said walk righteously. So it's a progression. It, the truth is of a progressive nature, brothers and sisters. And if you find yourself standing rather than walking, you're going to be in a heap of trouble, brothers and sisters. Let us show you. Let's go to Matthew 23. Let's go there. Matthew, the 23rd chapter, the first through the third verse. Let us show you, brothers and sisters. Let us show you here, okay? Uh, Matthew 23 and 1. Matthew 23 and 1. Then spake Christ to the multitude and to his disciples, saying... What did he say? The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What did he say? The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So the seat of Moses is generally understood to represent authority to teach Moses. So he said they sit in Moses' seat. So as the priest, right? As the authority, right? Verse 3. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. Read that again, brother, please. Verse 3. All, the, <clears throat> excuse me, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe. All that the Pharisees teach you, do. That observe and do. But do not ye after their works. For they say and do not. So look at that. He said their doctrine was good. The Pharisees' doctrine was good. <laughs> he said, do all they say. Is Would God say, do all the Christian church says? Would God say, do what all the Mormons say? Would God say, do what the, you know, what the Buddhists and Hinduists? No. But here it was, Pharisees, Christ said, do all that they say. Do it all. So he's telling you that the doctrine was right. <laughs> The real error of these leaders was not doctrinal. It was hypocrisy. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Do you see that? Jump to verse 33, brother, please. Matthew 23 and 33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Mm, brothers and sisters, examine the question Christ poses to the biblical intellects of his time. <laughs> These are the biblical intellects. See? Do all that they say. And then he calls them what? Verse 33. Verse 33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? How can you escape hell? 
You have all doctrine. You, doctrine's right. But how are you going to be able to escape the damnation of hell? There's two ways to approach God's word as the tree of knowledge or the tree of life. Brothers and sisters. Okay, these are the two ways. Do you go to church or come to the broadcast, the podcast to learn hidden intellectual theologies or to change? Which one is it? Are you looking to change or are you looking to just learn some cool stuff that you can go take to somebody? If you're here for intellectual understanding, you're in great danger. You're in great danger. Because the Bible first is for application. It's for cleansing. Okay? It's for submission first. Then subsequent to that, once you get those things out of you, now we can go and do some work. Okay? Now we can go to other people. We wanted to show you that what? These were the most educated people of Christ's time. Christ called them serpents and vipers. And posed the question of how will you escape? Doctrine's good. You're still going to hell with a good doctrine. So I wanted to be clear on that, brothers and sisters. These were the intellects, okay? These are the intellects. Let's go to Matthew 13 and 52. Matthew 13 and 52. We're going to show you. Who were the smartest people of that day? Matthew 13 and 52. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now the question is, brothers and sisters, who were the intellects of Christ's day? Some people would say Pharisees, but even more than the Pharisees was the scribes. The word scribes is teachers, brothers and sisters. See that? So you'll always see scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, and in that order. Because it was the scribes who were the instructors, brothers and sisters. Here we read one of the most sobering passages of scripture for biblical intellectuals. According to the text, a scribe and the disciple have two different natures. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 13 and 52. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder. Brothers and sisters, that word instructor or instructed is what? It's disciple. <laughs> so it says, Therefore every scribe which is a disciple tell you what? That scribes and disciples have two different natures. You see that? Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 52. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So brothers and sisters, Christ was expecting scribes to become disciples of the kingdom. You see that? So he's saying, yeah, you can be an instructor, a scribe, but you need to become a disciple. Therefore, every scribe, which is a disciple unto the kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of the treasure things new and old. So he said, therefore, every scribe, which is a disciple, that means every scribe is not a disciple. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? If it's something you must become, then it's something you are currently not. See, 
academic or doctrinal knowledge does not make you a follower of Christ. He's saying scribes must become disciples. Why? Disciple means follower. <laughs> See, that's what it means. I'm a disciple of Christ. It means I follow Christ. See, so when you look at that word scribe, it tells you it's instructor. When you look at that word instructed right there, brothers and sisters, it tells you disciple. Therefore, every scribe, which is a disciple unto the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> See, so you can be a scribe and all that. You could be, you know, have deep knowledge and all that. But if you don't become a disciple, brimstone, fire, darkness. We just wanted to show you that Christ was expecting scribes to become disciples. They're different. They have different natures. A scribe is somebody who documents everything and teaches it. Okay. They had the records. Disciple is somebody who follows someone. We're disciples of Christ. You should be a disciple of Christ. We're letting Christ lead us in. Let's go to 1 Timothy 4. Let's go here. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, the 15th verse. First Timothy 4 and 15. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wally to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Look at that. Brothers and sisters, Paul admonishes us to be adequately self-aware. He said, give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. Let's read that one more time, brother, please. First Timothy 4 and 15. Now look at this. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself. Do what? Take heed unto thyself. No, take heed of other people. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Look at that. There's two things he said do. Be unrelenting in moral vigilance over your personal life. See, this is for teachers right here. <laughs> you see, this is for teachers. Teachers have to do what? Verse 16. Verse 16. Take heed unto thyself. First thing you have to do is worry about yourself, brother. Okay? Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. See that? Then the doctrine. <laughs> See that? See that? What's most important is how you're living, brother. Okay? And then we go to the doctrine. So number one is to be unrelenting. Moral vigilance. In your personal life. And number two is be unwavering in theological vigilance. Or vigilance over your doctrine. So the first thing we have to get in order is you. And I tell brothers this all the time. You can't do the work until you get yourself together. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. Okay. If your life is not conducive to leadership. Good leadership according to God. You're going to have to move out the way brother. For now. You're going to have to move out the way. So the as a teacher. The first thing I must do is take heed to myself and then the doctrine read that one more time from the top brother please first timothy 4 and 15 meditate upon these things give thyself wholly to them 
that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself. Do what? Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. See that? The first thing you must do is save thyself. You see that? Then you can help those. So, brothers and sisters, this, this scripture is packed with power. Self-awareness is the strongest predictor of success. Take heed unto thyself. Self-awareness. Self-awareness starts with what? Self-observation. You see? Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Save thyself, then them that hear thee. Yes, brothers and sisters, we teach the Bible. We have a church. But before anything else has to come for me to make sure I get in. So the most important thing is for me to get in. To me. You know, above my wife and kids, I have to get in myself. <laughs> okay? Just like you all. So the number one on the list must be yourself. Because what happens? Our people learn truth. And they want to run to teach it. The first thing you have to do is take heed unto thyself. Then unto the doctrine. So he's telling you doctrine is important, but it's second. What's number one is your behavior. It's your conduct. Your conduct comes first. Your doctrine comes second. Why? Because it's your conduct that's going to allow people or allow you to teach people doctrine. See, in order for you to teach doctrine... Your life must be in order because a person is going to look at that order or lack thereof and say, I can hear his doctrine or cannot. Take heed unto thyself first. Self-awareness. <laughs> See? Let's go to Romans 2. Let's go there, brothers and sisters. Romans, the second chapter, the 17th verse. Romans 2 and 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and retest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Now look at this. Paul is addressing those who call themselves Jews. He said, behold, thou art called a Jew. So he's speaking to Jews here. Okay, brothers and sisters, can you read that one more time? Romans 2 and 17, behold, thou art called a Jew, and resteth in the law. Resteth in the law. And makest thy boast of God. And this is what we do. This is, a, we're, we're God's children. God is our father. He said, I'm speaking to you Jews who say, listen, the law was given to us. We make boast that Ahiah is our God. We do that, right? Jump to verse 21, brother. Let's read 21 through 24. Romans 2 and 21. Thou therefore which teachest another brother. He, he said those who teach others. Can you read it? Thou therefore which teachest another. Teachest thou not thyself. What did he say? Teachest not thou not thyself. Don't you teach yourself? <laughs> See? He said you're teaching other people. Do you teach yourself? See these passages highlight our resistance. To recognize in our own sin. So yeah it's good. You, you want to teach other people. But first you must teach yourself. To show you that what? There's a segment of our people. Who are really not interested in. 
self-awareness or changing. It's more so being able to tell other people that you're wrong. Because why? If I can point out where you're wrong, I'm authority over you. Because I can point out where you're wrong. See? First person we teach is ourselves. Read that one more time, brother, please. Romans 2 and 21. Thou therefore which teaches another, teachest thou not thyself. Thou that thou preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal. Are you telling men not to steal, yet you're stealing from God? You're not putting your first fruits away? Huh? You're telling people about the Sabbath. Are you keeping the Sabbath? Verse 22. Thou that says a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? You're telling brothers not to be fornicating out there. Are you watching pornification? Uh, are you watching, you know, X-rated stuff? Are you doing that? Thou that abhors idols. You say you don't like idols, right? You say that the Muslims are bowing down to a rock. Does thou commit sacrilege? Do you have idols in your heart? See, that's not a graven image. You see that, brothers and sisters? Continue. Verse 23. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through baking the law dishonors thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Through who? Through you. Through who? Through you. As it is written. Hypocrisy is knowing the truth, but not obeying it. Claiming Christ as Lord, but not following it. And that's the first thing he dealt with here, brothers and sisters. The first thing he said is, okay, those of you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? See? So he practices, a hypocrite practices the opposite of what he preaches. And his outward appearance does not match his inward condition. See, that's a, a, a hypocrite. When you look at the, the four things that Christ hated most, that was it. <laughs> Hypocrisy. He spoke about it many times. He spoke about it many times. He repudiated hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters. He said, the first thing you must know, teach thyself. Okay? Correct yourself. Because until you do that, I cannot use you as a minister. You can't minister to anyone because you can't minister to yourself. You won't deal with the sin that I'm revealing in you, but yet you want to tell somebody else about pork. Let's go to Mark, brethren. Let's go to the gospel now. Mark, the 8th chapter, the 14th verse. Brothers and sisters, the title of today's lesson, Between Two Trees. Between Two Trees. Mark 8 and 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed. What did he do? Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Brothers and sisters, read uh, 15 one more time, brother. Verse 15. And he charged them. He saying, charged them. Charged them means he ordered them saying. Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, look at that. Examine the two leavens that the Messiah warned the disciples concerning. Can you read that again, brother? Mark 8 and 15. And he charged them, saying, 
Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven of the Pharisees. And of the leaven of Herod. Leaven of Herod. So the leaven of the Pharisees included their hypocritical behavior. Okay. The leaven of Herod, Antipas, was his immoral, corrupt conduct. And we're going to discuss that. Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 15. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Christ knew it, he saith unto them. What did he say? Why reason ye? Because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Look at this, brothers and sisters. Christ questioned, rebuked the disciples for completely missing his point. <laughs> completely missed his point. He rebuked them for their lack of spiritual perception. How do we know? Read that one more time, brother, please. Mark 8 and 17. And when Christ knew it, he saith unto them. What did them, he say? Why reason ye? Because ye have no bread. You think I'm talking about actual bread while I'm speaking eleven? Perceive ye not, yet hither, excuse me, neither understand. Look at this. Don't you perceive what I'm trying to express to you, right? Don't you understand what I'm trying to express to you? Have ye your heart yet hardened? See that? So he was concerned, brothers and sisters, with spiritual truth, not just mundane physical matters. How do we know? Read verse 18, brother. Verse 18. Having eyes, see ye not. And having ears, hear ye not. And do ye not remember? See? <laughs> see that, brothers and sisters? So we know that what? The leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. Okay? We talked about that. Now, the leaven of Herod is conjoined to do and contrast it with the leaven of the Pharisees. So it's, it's, it's conjoined and contrasted. So there must be two different things. Okay, brothers and sisters. He's telling you there's two leavens. One is of hypocrisy. One is of something else. Okay, let us show you the leaven of Herod. What does that mean? Okay, let's go to Mark 6 and 20. This is the leaven of Herod. We understand the leaven. We know leaven is, if you add a little yeast or leaven, it makes a lot of bread, a lot of dough. It causes it to rise, right? We know this. So he said uh, the Pharisees, their leaven, their leaven, a little bit of leaven, leavening the whole lump. Their leaven is hypocrisy. Doctrine is good. Hypocrisy. And Herod's leaven is what we'll read here. Mark 6 and 20. For Herod feared John. Look at this. John the Baptist. He feared John. Knowing that he was a just man and holy. And observed him. And what? And observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things. And heard him gladly. Now look at this, brothers and sisters. It's telling you that Herod had fear of John. Okay? Because he knew John was a holy man. Observed him. He said he did many things. He heard him gladly. So he loved to hear John. You see that, brothers and sisters? Jump to verse 22. Mark 6 and 22. Why? Because just because you like to listen to the word of God does not make you a spiritual man or woman. And see, that's the leaven of Herod. In, in, in verse 21, excuse me, in, in verse 20, it tells you, he feared John and he heard him gladly. 
He loved to hear John break down the word, right? However, verse 22. Mark 6 and 22. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. Lab dance. The king said unto the damsel, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give it thee. Look at this, brothers and sisters. So he just got done saying how he feared John, <laughs> to love to hear him, to get in a lap dance within two, within two scriptures. You, you see? So he'll go straight from listening to a prophet of the Most High to watching a woman improperly or immodestly dressed. According to the text, it's not about how good you hear. It's about how good you respond to what you hear. See this? He gladly heard John. He feared John. To hear the word and not do it is to not really hear it at all, brothers and sisters. See? Hearing God's word is not the problem for most of us. Applying it to our lives is the problem for most of us. See, and this is the leaven of Herod. <laughs> See? The leaven of Herod is to hear it, to learn intellectually, and not to apply it at all. And one scripture says he feared John. He knew John was a good man. John was just. <laughs> In fact, he was glad to hear John's words. Loved to hear him speak. To, to one verse later, getting a lap dance. See, that's the leaven right there. To, you have the knowledge. You have the intellect. Right? It's just book knowledge. It's just academia for you academically for you. If you're learning the Bible academically only, you're in a world of trouble. You're in a world of trouble. Let's go to Acts, brother. Acts 17. Acts, the 17th chapter, we'll have brother Christopher read 19 through 21. Yeah, Acts 17 and 19. Acts 17 and 19. And they took him and brought him into Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. Now hold on, brothers and sisters. Here's a brother asking about a new doctrine. See? A lot of people love new doctrine. They love to, to hear things they've never heard before, to be able to say, I have new information. The author teaches us that there's a segment of people who only desire to learn something new. Let's read that one more time, brother. Acts 17 and 19. And they took him and brought him unto Herapagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Tell us this new doctrine that you have. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We will know, therefore, what these things mean. What you're bringing to us, we haven't heard before. We need explanation. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else. Read that one more time, brother, please. Verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell... Or to hear some new thing. But either to tell or what? 
or to hear some new thing. Now, brothers and sisters, here we read of a people who pursue biblical knowledge strictly for the intellectual properties. Now, remember, Athens was greatly distinguished for the celebrity of their schools in philosophy. Okay, that's what Athens was. <laughs> okay, so the text illustrates the inability of human language to convey from one person to all others a clear, comprehensible idea. Because here it is, we have the Bible, but we're looking for different things in it. They're learning, they're just here for doctrine. Because it's strange, because they're philosophers. <laughs> we're here for what? Application. See, they're not here for application. How do we know? Read 21 again, brother, please. Acts 17 and 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing they else. They spent their time in nothing else. But either to tell or to hear some new thing. See, they just wanted what was new. You see? So the text teaches us that people study the word of God for different reasons. Some for application, but most strictly for intellect. And if you're dealing with it just strictly from an intellectual perspective, and guess what, brothers and sisters, I understand we teach, you know, as as in academics, you know, we teach it in that manner. I, I, I understand that, brothers and sisters. We teach it on a scholarly level, but we also push application. OK, we we push submission. So I, I hope brothers and sisters who, you know follow our church are not just learning academically, intellectually for head knowledge because how we teach is yes, we're going to teach you from a scholarly level because we want you to be a scholar. We want you to be able to contend with the scholars, but also submission is most important. See, Lord, owner, you see, brothers and sisters, it's showing you here that Paul, obviously, which is a very bright brother, probably the brightest brother as it pertained to like the law because he was a Pharisee, is telling you that they had to question Paul about this new doctrine that they're hearing. Never heard this before, Paul. Break this down. See, they were interested in stuff like that. Some people just want something new. That's it. So they'll listen to all these different teachers and go all over the place on YouTube with itching ears and it, and it leads them where? <laughs> it leads them to confusion because Timothy said in the last days, most people would have itching ears and reap to themselves teachers. And the doctrines, there will be a mix of doctrines to where a point of a brother or sister is just confused and put it down altogether. Because one brother is saying one thing and the other brother saying this. And then there's a brother that says this. See that, brothers and sisters? We wanted to show you there's a segment of the populace that are only looking to hear something new. Let's go to James 2. Everyone doesn't study the Bible for the same reasons. Brothers and sisters, let's prove this. James 2 and 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Brothers and sisters, the fallacy of faith without works 
is demonstrated by the demons. How do we know? Can you read that again, brother? Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God. You believe there's one God. Thou doest well. Good job. The devils also believe and tremble. See that, brothers and sisters? James' purpose in highlighting these principles is to show acknowledgement of God alone is insufficient. So just to say, I know you're God, <laughs> that's not enough. James is showcasing the differences between mental agreement and genuine, genuine saving faith. Read that one more time, brother. James 2 and 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. See that? They also believe and fear. So according to what we're seeing, demons are more aware of God's reality than most people are. Yet they refuse to submit. And that's what it's showing. You can believe in God, but if you don't submit, you're no different than the devil. The devil believes in God, but he refuses to submit. <laughs> See, so when people say, well, the only thing you need to have is faith. Wrong. You're not rightfully dividing the word. There's more <laughs> that, that you have to do, not just believe that there's a God. Because you're no different from Satan himself. And this is what we're learning, brothers and sisters. This is where we are going. If you believe in there's one God, great. I'll, I'll pat you on the back. Great job. But if it stops there, then guess what? Your faith is illegitimate. It's illegitimate. Because you just believe. That's it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians, the 4th chapter, the 10th and the 11th verses. 2 Corinthians 4 and 10. What's that saying, brother? Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Christ, that the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our body. Now, brothers and sisters, if that intellectual knowledge does not transmit into your actions... <laughs> I need you to read that again, brother, please. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Christ. Always bearing about in your flesh what Christ have done for you, right? That the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our body. Made manifest in our belief. Made manifest in our body. No, made manifest in our speech. Manifest in our body. You see that? Faith alone is not enough to prove the legitimacy of submission. <laughs> okay. It said the life of Christ might be made manifest where? In our body. See? So salvation cannot be legitimized without the appropriate works, brothers and sisters. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Christ. That the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our body. Made manifest where, brother? Manifest in our body. Yes. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Christ's sake. That the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Where should it be seen? Manifest in our mortal flesh. See that? If mere belief in the Most High could save the soul, then Satan is a believer. You see that? He's saying your belief should be manifest, which means revealed in your mortal flesh. Belief is not enough. 
See, now you're understanding what is required to get to this tree of life. <laughs> a flaming sword, which represents not only God's presence, but his judgment. His judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, judgment doesn't always mean a bad thing. If you do the right thing, there's a judgment for that, okay? <laughs> judgment, justice. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, brothers and sisters. Take a look at this. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Brothers and sisters, this is what I call the final examination. Just like in school or in college, high school, you know, you have that, that test at the very end, right? <laughs> it's your final exam. This is the final examination. What does it say, Brother Christopher? Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Look at that. We will stand before Christ to be held accountable for our choices. That everyone may receive the things done in his body. Done where? Done in his body. Done where, brother? Done in his body. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Christ will require account of things done in his absence. And according to what we're seeing here, these verses state a reality that we all face. We are accountable to the creator for our conduct. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Whether what? Whether it be good or bad. According to the text, gray areas do not exist with God. Whether it be good or bad, not in the middle. So everything you do is either good or bad. There's an absolute right or an absolute wrong and nothing in between with God. Okay, there is no gray area. What you've done in your body, see? Your body is made for God. Romans 12 says what? Lay your body on the altar, brothers and sisters. Submission. Submission. We're showing you what? <laughs> this is what's required. This is what is mandated in order to get to the tree of life. And many people would rather go the other way because it's less painful to just, you know, get knowledge. Rather than let the sword fall on you to cleanse yourself in fire the same way they cleanse gold in fire and then to make it to the other side. Let's go to Galatians 5, brother. Let's go there. New Testament, let's stay there. We're almost done, brothers and sisters. Galatians, the fifth chapter, the seventh and the eighth verses. Galatians 5 and 7. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? What did he say, brother? You did run well. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Who hindered you? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, not everybody who started with you will finish with you. Be willing to let them go. Read seven one more time, brother, please. Verse seven, you did run well. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? See, some were making good progress spiritually. They had a good beginning, that Paul, but Paul knows that it isn't enough to start well, okay? 
verse 8. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth thee. Oh, read that again. Galatians 5 and 8. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth thee. So somebody persuaded you. You see, there's persuasion. Brothers and sisters, according to what we're seeing, starting is not most people's problems. Staying, continuing, and finishing is. Okay, he said, you did run well. You started, but something transpired after that that hindered you from the truth. So the author emphasizes that salvation and sanctification is a matter of what? Obedience. Obedience. Read that one more time, brother, please. Galatians 5 and 7. You did run well. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Brothers and sisters, persuasion produces an actual and outward result. That's what we're seeing here. Due to wicked influences. He said this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Satan will always look to persuade you. Okay, brothers and sisters, he never t says the Bible is not true. What he does is try to misinterpret it, okay? Make you believe. He knows how to put the right light on it. He knows how to put the right shine on that fruit, <laughs> okay? He knew exactly, you know, what voice to use. He knew exactly what to do. Persuasion. Brothers and sisters, what you see before you today is why. Is because somebody listened to a snake. All of what we have before us is because somebody listened to a snake. Be careful who you listen to, brothers and sisters. Be careful who you listen to. The title of today's lesson, In Between Two Trees, From Death to Life. Brothers and sisters, we went through a myriad of scriptures today. Um... To utilize the Bible to show us the path to the tree of life. We all know about the tree of good and evil. But I've I haven't heard much on the tree of life. And what we learned today is that there's a flaming sword prohibiting us from advancing. The only way to advance would be to allow that flaming sword to fall on you. Brothers and sisters, we know that that flame, that fire represents what? The presence of God. And that sword represents his judgment. Today's lesson, in between two trees. We want to say, Kwam Yasharala. Kwam Yasharala. Sin no more. Sin no more.